Well, let's open the word of the Lord together to the epistle of James and find chapter 2. I'll be preaching this morning from verses 17 through 20. If you're visiting with us, we've been walking through James for a number of months now, and uh, this will be our final sermon at least for a few weeks. Next Lord's Day, as hard as it is to believe, we begin the season of Advent, and I'll be preaching a series of weekly messages from John 17 as we approach the birth of our Savior or the celebration of the birth of our Lord. But for now, chapter 2 of James, verses 17 through 20, and as you're finding that place in the Word of God, we arrive at a very familiar scene in James, one you probably know a lot about if you've ever read the epistle of James. Here, James will deal most explicitly with the relationship that exists between saving faith in Christ and works. And as you might suspect, this is a place in the Word of God where misunderstandings are in abundance. It is easy to misunderstand what James says here about faith and works as compared with other places in the New Testament that also talk about faith and works. Some have read the epistle of James and been brought to the conclusion that he is offering a different gospel than that of Jesus or the apostles. Many are suggesting more specifically that James is writing something that is in direct contrast or in direct contradiction with the Apostle Paul. It seems as if James might be saying that we are brought into a state of grace, that we are saved by our works. And we're going to look at that this morning and try to see what James is actually declaring here. As we walk through these verses, it will become very apparent that, indeed, James is is not contradicting Jesus. He is not contradicting Paul, but he is coming at the subject of faith and works from a slightly different perspective, and we need to listen to this perspective. We need to see it from this, this angle, and so let's now hear what the brother of our Lord has written in chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. So also faith by itself If it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, quote, you have faith and I have works, unquote. But show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And now may the Lord add his richest blessings to the proclamation of his holy and inspired word. Well, as we read verse 17, there's a most significant statement that flows from the pen of James. Faith apart from works is dead. You'll notice in verse 26 of the same chapter that he says it again. Faith apart from works is dead. Now that in in, in anybody's universe is a startling declaration. It, It shakes us up. What makes it even more amazing is verse 24. Look down at verse 24. James says a person is justified by works and and not by faith alone. And wow, that seems to be 
in direct contradiction to everything we know to be true about saving faith. So, so what are we to make of this? What gives here? Well, in order to begin unraveling what James is saying, to, to, to get the perspective that James approaches this from, we need to remember the context, the setting. You know, as we've walked through these verses week after week and month after month, that, that James is very, very concerned about those who merely profess to be Christians, and that's all. One way he's spoken of those people, he says in verse 22 of chapter 1, they are like people who, who merely hear the word, but they don't, they don't do the word. And as a pastor, writing to people, writing to churches scattered about the known world back in the first century, James is very concerned about those who might vigorously declare that they belong to Jesus, and yet they don't bear the marks of that redemption in their everyday life. That's the problem. And he's given us some hints about that along the way. People like that are those who aren't steadfast under trial, chapter 1, verse 12. And that's why he said there's a blessing for those who are steadfast under trial. Those who just hear the word, who've just made a profession of faith, they fall away under trial. He also says in chapter 1 that those who just hear the word, who just profess to know Christ, they don't control their tongues. And their tongues are like a fire, burning up everything inside. And, and that's the person who has not been redeemed. He says another characteristic of that person who just makes a profession is that their anger is unrighteous. They, they don't control their anger. In chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, these people don't welcome the word. In chapter 1, verse 21 and verse 27, these people are really, at the end of the day, worldly and morally dirty. And in chapter 2, verse 12, we've seen that these who simply profess to know Jesus, they don't live in the light of the judgment that's coming. So these are the things that really concern James. He has churches full of people making professions to know Christ, but he's concerned. Is there any evidence that they really do know Christ? That's the heart of his concern. He is confronting any profession of Christianity unsupported by concrete evidence. And that concrete evidence is in the form of a new life and a new direction in life. And most critically, it is a lack of love and mercy. A lack of love. Despite all these other negative qualities, at the end of the day, the love of God is not really beating in their hearts. They don't love the Lord, and they don't love others. And this is the subject in chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, that immediately precedes our text this morning. He is concerned about the fact that those who merely make a profession don't keep the law. And how is the law summarized? How did Jesus himself summarize all of the teaching of the law? He said, it is found in this that you love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And you love your brother. You love the other person as you love yourself. And on this hangs the law and the prophet, says the word of God. And that's the concern of James. Merely professing to know Christ. 
but there's no proof. You might remember how James has dramatically illustrated this lack of proof. He, he speaks in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, of that situation, that hypothetical situation of a church gathering like ours. And he says, here are the people worshiping, and lo and behold, a rich man enters the worship center, a visitor. And he is well appointed. He is obviously powerful. And James describes how the members of the church just fall over themselves, trying to bring this man to the best seat in the house. They, they have judged him to be worthy of their friendship, worthy of their affection, worthy of special treatment. And they knock themselves out, making him feel special. And then a poor man comes in. And he is dressed in shabby clothing. And he is needy. He is among the poor classes and while they're fawning over the rich man, they completely forget and ignore this poor man. And while ushering the rich man to the finest seat in the house, they say to the poor man, you just sit on the floor or go stand in the back. And James says, it's a lack of love. If that's the way you view people, then you don't love God and you don't love others as you love yourself, the sin of favoritism. So the point James is making, and, and here is what you want to wrap your head around this morning, what he is telling us is, is that the person who truly meets Christ and is saved by God's grace is a changed person. A change begins to take place in them, and that change is fundamentally expressed as love. Love. James has called this the royal law or the law of liberty, love for one another. The point is, our love for God is only made evident by our love for other people. And there is the proof, or lack thereof, that a person has been saved by grace. Those who know Christ have beating within them a new heart. And a heart that wants to reveal itself in acts of mercy and kindness. Things like forgiveness. Things like self-sacrifice and humble service. Things like meeting the needs of other people without any expectation of being rewarded or even recognized. It looks like compassion for each other. Mercy for those in need. Tenderness. A willingness even to be wronged. If that's what it takes to love another person, it is the person who has no need to settle the account or have the last word. That is love. And that is the proof. That is the infallible proof that you've met the Lord of love and he is your savior. Notice the word works works. Faith without works, he says, is, is dead. Well, let's put a deeper definition on this word works. What James has in mind is, is not something that the sinner does that earns him a standing before God. The works that James speaks of are not the works that the sinner accomplishes which are then added to what Christ has done in his life and death and resurrection. Rather, the works James speaks of here are those things that saving faith inevitably produces in us. 
Do you see the difference? He is not saying our works save us. He is saying that saving faith bears a harvest of works. Some of you remember or know of the the way the Protestant reformers of the 16th century would often speak of this. When they spoke and wrote and preached of saving faith, they would would typically say something like this, that we we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Because true faith produces something. True faith in Christ, it's been said, before it ever does a a single work, it saves by embracing Christ. But this faith that saves by embracing Christ then reveals itself by producing works of love in our hearts. And so works then, according to James, are the native and necessary product of one's faith. And this is exactly what the whole Bible teaches, especially the New Testament. I can immediately think of what Peter says about faith and works. And listen to the way he lays them out in great harmony in chapter 1 of 1 Peter 1. He says, first, that according to his great mercy, the Lord God has caused us to be born again to a living hope by means of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is, salvation is all of God and none of me. It is all about the work of God and has nothing to do with my work. God has saved us. But then he says this. He also tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that we were chosen in Christ in eternity for salvation, quote, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. God has saved us by faith alone in His Son, but we've been graciously saved by the Lord in order to obey Jesus Christ. Faith and works. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is always accompanied by that blessed fruit of obeying Him. And James is putting his finger on obedience, showing itself most gloriously by love. Faith puts us to work. Faith always works. Now in the very passage you have before us, I didn't read this part, but in the passage we have before us, James gives us two Old Testament illustrations of the relationship between faith and works. Let's look at them for a moment. You'll see in verses 21 and 22, James reaches in and he pulls out the illustration of Abraham from the Old Testament. And he says, Abraham is a man who was truly saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remained alone. Listen to what he says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active, active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. You know the story of Abraham. 
And he was proven to be a believer, James says, on the day that he obeyed the command of the Lord to take his only son, Isaac, the son of promise, up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham took Isaac to the top of the mountain and he drew out the knife to slay him. And the Lord stopped him and provided the ram caught in the thicket. And the Lord said, now, now I know, now you know that you belong to me. You see, faith made him obedient. He loved God so much. Imagine this. He loved God so much that he would obey any and every word of the Lord, even if this incomprehensible command fell from heaven, slaughter your own son. Faith. Salvation on display. And then James pulls out another name in verse 25. You know this name, Rahab. Do you remember when we went through Joshua several months ago, we made the observation that every time Rahab's name is mentioned, it's mentioned this way, every time, Rahab the prostitute. She is forever known as Rahab the prostitute. And here's that name again. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Like Abraham, Rahab had already been redeemed by the grace and mercy of God, but this fact was made apparent by her obedience. She she brought the spies in that Joshua had sent into Jericho. She brought them in. She sheltered them. She protected them, and she was delivered by them. She loved the people of God, and she loved the God of the people. And James says she, like Abraham, had a lively, real faith. And her faith was made evident by the fact that you could see her loving her God by obedience. All true saints, Old Testament and New Testament, display this. Their faith in Christ, which is itself a gift. Their faith in Christ, which saves them alone, works itself out in a distinctive lifestyle of obedience and love. Think of it this way. I almost chuckle when I say this. Someone has said that genuine faith in Christ is like calories. You can't see them but you can see the results. The effect of our new life in Christ produces outward changes, not only inner changes, but changes that can be seen. Works, then, are the natural consequence of authentic faith in Christ. Works flow from a heart that is at peace with God. Works flow from a heart that's received the mercy and grace of God. Works are absolutely essential then in this way to true faith. But maybe you need need more help with this. Maybe you need more convincing. Let's remember together something Jesus said in Matthew 7. 
Doubtless you will remember this pericope. You will remember this paragraph where our Lord speaks about faith. Listen to what he says about faith and works in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 17. Jesus said, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then Jesus begins to explain what he just said. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, the one who has the fruit of true faith. On that day, the day that the Lord comes, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you dead trees. And so Jesus spoke of true faith and false faith, faith, living faith and dead faith. But there's something else we have to see to properly understand the teaching of James. It's the way James uses the word justified. And he uses it in a different way than Paul does. Again, James has a different purpose. He has a different perspective. Not a different gospel, but a different emphasis. When James says, Abraham was justified not by faith, but by works. And Rahab was justified not by faith alone, but by works. He is using the term justification in the terms of being validated. His claim, the claim of Abraham to be a follower of the Lord, the claim of Rahab to be a follower of the Lord, was, was validated before men by the fruit. He is not speaking of being justified before God. For we are justified before God by faith alone, literally by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. And James believes that. But he's speaking about being justified, being validated by the world and by other people. In other words, the evidence of saving faith can be witnessed by people. It's been said that true faith cannot exist separately from works, and works acceptable in the sight of God cannot be performed without true faith in Christ. Do you remember what what the old revivalist used to say, the question he would ask when I was a boy and we would go to those summer revivals? And more than once I heard this question, if Christianity were outlawed, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What a haunting question. It's the question James is asking. And notice how he speaks of dead faith. Can you imagine having faith, but it's dead? Dead. It remains only a claim. It is mere words. 
He says it's by itself in verse 17. It is, it is not accompanied by evidence. It's a, a hollow assertion. It is unjustified, unsubstantiated. It is a claim to be a Christian unaccompanied by obedience. It amounts to mere talk, one says. It is void of all reality. And more specifically, it has been said in this context that the kind of faith that does not show mercy cannot be faith in the mercy of God. Do do you see that? If I don't have mercy for you, how can my claim to know the God of mercy be substantiated? It can't be. One commentator has said, without merciful works, faith is a solitary life. It is a solitary faith, and such faith is dead. In verse 18, though, James imagines that someone objects to what he is saying. And again, if that's you this morning... It's okay. If you're pushing against this, that's all right. James anticipates that. So let's just go further with him and see what he says. Notice verse 18. He imagines that somebody in the church, someone, might take issue with what he is saying. And that person who's upset, who is pushing against this, might might allege that it is possible to separate faith from works. Again, verse 18, James quotes the unnamed objector. But someone will say, that is someone among the readers of this epistle, someone, someone may say, oh, James, now look, you got it all wrong. You have faith, and I have works. Can't we just get along? Let me put that in contemporary terms, all right? Today's objector might say this. Oh, oh, you have great faith in Christ. Good for you. Good for you. You were able to trust in the Lord, and that's how you serve him. But I, I do works. I'm into deeds. For me, Christianity is not about what you believe. It's only about what you do. But the point is, the objector wants to separate faith and works as if you could have one without the other, as if they were distinctive gifts. You know, you got faith and and, and you got works. And James says you you can't do that. You can't do that. That's why James replies. This is his reply. This is where he denies the objection. James then says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You can't disconnect them. Faith and works must always go together. It is not enough for a man to say he has faith if the evidence proves otherwise. And the evidence James has in mind, among all the evidentiary considerations, the one piece of evidence he has in mind is mercy. Remember the poor man and the rich man and how there was no mercy from the congregation of Jesus toward this man in need? 
And James is saying, how can you not have mercy if you belong to Jesus? You cannot separate faith and works. Well, in verse 19, I mean, as if things could not get any hotter in the kitchen. And, and those of you that have been here a while, you, you know James, he just tells it like it is. And if what he said so far isn't shocking enough, wait till you read this. Now your cage is really going to get rattled. James says in verse 19, again, he's talking to the church. He isn't talking to pagans. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. You believe that God is one? You do well. For even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Well, let's try to get to the heart of this provocative statement. What, what is James really saying here? Well, the first thing he's saying is that faith is not in a creed. It's not in a creed. In other words, he's saying faith is not a matter of the intellect. It, it is not a matter of agreeing with orthodox doctrine. I mean, as wonderful as orthodox theology is, and believe me, we're for it, all right? James is saying you can be orthodox in your theology and still go to hell. When he says... The phrase, God is one, oh, that would have resonated with the Jewish members of his audience. Remember, his audience was mixed. Some Gentiles who had become Christians and some Jews who had left their Judaism and become Christians. And when he said, if you believe that God is one, if that's what you claim, you're doing well. Every Jewish Christian would have immediately remembered Deuteronomy 6.4, the basic summary of Israel's faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the basic article of the Jewish faith, the, the essential formula of Jewish religion. And James is saying, even if you embrace that, and that's all, it's not enough. Dead faith, one commentator writes, is often ready to say yes to all of the articles of the faith. Even dead faith can recite the confessions and the catechisms correctly, but it's nothing but dead orthodoxy, cold intellectualism that cannot save anyone. It is not flowing from a redeemed heart at all. And then James says, if that's all you've got as far as faith goes, you're in some strange company because the demons can do that too. Every demon can affirm all of the truths of Christianity. You have interesting companions in your faith. The devils of hell. Every evil spirit, every fallen angel knows and affirms the truth of God's word and all of the tenets and dogmas of Christianity. They embrace every orthodox affirmation of the gospel. They do it with all of their hearts and they yet continue as demons. They are not saved and they cannot be saved. 
Barnes has written this, that if the very demons of darkness hold such a faith and remain in perdition, then men may also exhibit the same kind of faith and go to perdition. How many people are church members but have only a demonic faith? What a, what a staggering question. A demonic faith that believes in God and in Christianity in a general way, but has, has not met Christ. Has not been possessed by the Spirit of God who begins to transform us. James continues. He's not through talking about the demons. Notice he says that when the demons think about God... When the demons think about the truth, they have a reaction. They, they shudder. That, that's a pretty graphic word. It means to be in sheer terror. It's the kind of fear that makes your hair stand on its end. The demons have a knowledge of God that doesn't save them, but that knowledge, the knowledge they do have, makes them quake before God. They have a horrified reaction to the truth they know. They are not mistaken about what is true. They know the truth. They know what is false. And what they know to be true shakes them to the core of their being. Do you see that there are people all over this world whose faith has not even risen to the level of the demons yet? Because at least the demons know it's true and they're afraid of it. But how many people all over this globe today will put their finger in the face of God and say, I don't want to believe in you and I reject your truth and there is no fear of God before their eyes. They're not even as high as the demons are. We see an illustration of this very thing in the life of Jesus. You think of Matthew 8. Matthew records an event where, where Jesus met two demonized men, two demon-possessed men, two poor souls possessed by demons. One man was coming out of the tombs. He was so strong that no one could pass that way. As Jesus walked by, the demons possessing this man cried out to Jesus and listened to their cry, listened to their confession of faith. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They knew and affirmed who Jesus was, the Son of God, and that plunged them into fear. They had a visceral reaction to the truth, but that truth didn't save them. Even powerful emotional experiences are not enough to save. Even powerful shuddering and quaking is not enough to prove you know the Lord. Demons have that. Faith cannot be reduced to intense feelings or experiences of overwhelming terror or joy. Again, even the evil spirits experience all of that. Faith is much more. It is indeed the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
It is the embracing of that truth, but it is also, and this is absolutely necessary, it is the trust, the resting, the throwing yourself on the mercy of that Savior, and there's saving faith. And when a person has met Christ that way, they will never be the same again. Not perfect. Not without great struggles to obey. Not without sins and failings and, and many shortcomings. But they, they have beating now in them a new heart. A new obedience. A new direction in life. Do you see why James says what he says now? He's not saying anything different than Paul. The same gospel. But identifying the marks of saving faith that may be seen by the world. To summarize what James has written here very quickly, we can, we can say that there, there is no such thing as a true and living faith with, which doesn't produce obedience. That person who's been born again has a new Lord, a new king. And that king has spoken in his word. And the person who's been born again now resonates with that word. There, there's, a, there's a magnetic draw now. And that person's faith will be a lively faith that works. It's not that we, we must have works plus faith, but that a true faith bears the fruit of obedience. In other words, think of it this way. A true faith in Christ leaves a wonderful trail of evidence. A wonderful proof that it's real. Not only does Christ do his work for us on the cross, but James is saying he then does his work in us, renewing us, transforming us into the very image of our Savior. A man, a man such as Abraham, think about him, a man like Abraham from a pagan family, from a pagan culture, by grace, he becomes, as Paul says, a Christian and he obeys and he sacrifices all he has for the gracious God who has saved him. There's the evidentiary trail, there's the proof. And Rahab, think about Rahab from a, a desperately wicked place and a desperately wicked woman. She's redeemed. And now she loves and obeys that Lord who has redeemed her. And she loves those who love the Lord. And she saves their lives. She has mercy on the people of God. Why? Because her faith wasn't dead. Her faith was real. If you want a summary of what James is, is teaching us here, you can, you can quote Paul. Listen to the words of Paul in Galatians 6. And think of them in this context. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision or uncircumcision. None of that counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What kind of faith do you have?
a true faith or a dead faith? A saving faith or a demonic faith? Is your claim to be a believer justifiable? I'm not asking if you live a perfect life. I'm not asking if you don't need to confess your sins every day. I'm only asking, is your claim justifiable by those who look at you and they see a person who follows Jesus, who loves Christ and loves his people, and by all the grace that God can give, you are seeking to obey him and more specifically to love others. Do you have a new heart? Do you have a heart of tenderness and mercy and forgiveness? A heart of grace? A heart of humility? Do you have a short memory when it comes to personal offenses? Do you have a heart of service? Do you have the the proof that God is changing you by His Spirit? Is the mercy of God flowing in your veins? Does the love of the Savior cause you to love others? Is your faith in Christ working, working itself through, through love? This is the question James would ask. What kind of faith do you have? If you would confess this morning that you have a dead faith or a demonic faith, then you must repent of your sins. You must confess that you are at odds with God and you are, you are justly deserving of all his judgment. And you have no hope but in his mercy. Would you do that? Would you call out the name of Jesus and say, I, I believe that not only was he and is he the Son of God, I believe he lived and died and rose again for me, and I have no hope but in that, and I throw myself on that truth. And when you do, that will be the evidence of real faith. And maybe you already know the Lord, and you've been convicted this morning that the world needs to see more evidence that you belong to him. Do you, do you need to reform your life this morning in light of God's word? Are there sins that you need to confess? Are there people that you need to go to and seek their forgiveness or grant them forgiveness? Are there things you need to make right? Are there habits that need to be removed sins exposed and repented of and commitments made, then that's what you must do. That's what the Word calls us to do, to be people of real faith and to be a congregation that shows the world the greatest evidence that we've been loved by loving the world and loving each other. May God give us 
a true faith in his son. And may we leave a wonderful trail of evidence everywhere we go that Jesus has saved us. Would you pray with me?